economic growth can and should be inclusive. And the way to get there is to connect small businesses and individuals with the networks that drive the modern economy. In this episode of B-Side, we'll hear from Alison L. Eskison, Vice President at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth. Ms. Eskison, a seasoned international development executive with over 20 years' experience at the intersection of development and finance, tells Business World reporter Patricia B. Marisol how the center advances sustainable, equitable economic growth and financial inclusion around the world. What are the challenges when it comes to inclusive growth in this region? The Center for Inclusive Growth is really the innovation of our previous CEO, where we realized that if we want to transform at scale, huge systems that perpetuate exclusion among different segments of society, then we really need to think about philanthropy differently. And so the Center for Inclusive Growth was created to reconceptualize what does philanthropy mean and what is the corporate's role in driving social impact. And so when we think about economic growth that's inclusive, we focus on four distinct areas. The first is financial security. So really looking at how do small businesses have the knowledge, skills, the access to networks so that they can um, weather that very difficult times like right now with the global health pandemic. In addition to financial security, the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth focuses on the future of workers. So looking at the digital economy and digital platforms and how can they help workers to improve their prosperity, but then also what are the ways in which they might inadvertently create exclusion or inequality. Um, In addition to financial security and future of workers, we also focus on economic development. So thinking about place-based development. So how do LGUs or municipalities really think about and drive policies and processes that enable all of their constituents to succeed and prosper? And lastly, we focus on data for good. How do you think about data science and data access in a way that you can make better decisions to accelerate social impact? So another way to think about what the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth does is that we believe information inequality and income inequality are the two most pressing problems in today's society. And we want to create insights and impact and influence how we go about solving for these two overarching challenges. Are there any specific challenges and opportunities that are unique to the Asia-Pacific region as compared to like other regions like the Americas or Europe? The challenge with economic growth that's inclusive is to some degree it's relative, right? So there's certainly income inequality and information inequality in the Americas and in the same way that there is in the Philippines as there is in Singapore, as there is in China. And so how we look at it and the types of interventions really build on what is the local context and what are the pressing needs and how does that play out in a particular country, in a particular locality. So in the region, I really look at financial inclusion as one of the big challenges. Um, The World Bank has provided updated data for their global FINDEX that shows that financial inclusion has improved substantially over the last couple of years. However, low-income people actually using financial services in a way that benefits them is still lacking. And so 
when I think about the work that we do in the region, it really is set a new goalpost to move away from just financial inclusion, but also meaningful financial usage and inclusion. What are the challenges of connecting the underbanked and connecting small businesses into this digital economy? I think there's both systemic challenges and individual challenges. So at the systems level, there's certainly a level of infrastructure and connectivity that's required for all people, regardless of your geography or your socioeconomic status, to be able to connect in, right? So if you live in a rural area in the Philippines, it may be difficult for you to have access to be able to participate and rely on connectivity into the digital economy. But similarly, there is a knowledge gap and and a fear of change. And some of that is really how do you start to develop skills and know-how so that people feel enabled and empowered and emboldened to go about engaging in the digital economy. Another piece is also ensuring that people are safe and secure. And so one of the challenges, of course, is to have people have enough knowledge about what they can do, but also enough knowledge about how to protect themselves so that they are not victims of cyber scams. You mentioned about skills. So now I'm thinking about upskilling. What type of upskilling do women entrepreneurs have to do to thrive in this new environment? In some ways, it is exactly the same as male entrepreneurs in that they need to have access to the tools that are particularly well-tailored to their needs. Um, Sometimes that's at the base of the pyramid. Sometimes it's actually very specific gender needs. So one of the things that we've done throughout the region is to work with partners around how do you take the unique needs that women entrepreneurs have and tailor financial service products to better meet those needs. That's one way in which we collaborate at a systems level to try to push toward a really transformative change that continues to benefit women entrepreneurs. In addition to skills and tailored services, there's also a degree of empowerment and agency to create change, which becomes more relevant in certain countries than in others. And so when you're talking about working in South Asia, for example, the role of family and the expectation of women in families can play a really huge role in terms of creating a ceiling as to how engaged or how successful a woman entrepreneur might be. Either that's because her husband may take over the business once it gets to a certain size, or because her mother-in-law expects her to not be outside the house for such a long time. All those things are oftentimes very cultural, so may not be as relevant in the Philippines or in ASEAN as it is in South Asia. But we do know that culture is really important when we think about how do we look from end to end at all the needs women entrepreneurs need. I wonder if the center has any projects or initiatives in Southeast Asia, especially the Philippines, and uh, if you could share any information about that. We have a fabulous flagship program in Indonesia, which is called MasterCard Academy 2.0. Our goal is to empower 100,000 Indonesians with the skills they need to succeed in the digital economy. We are very much aligned with the government of Indonesia's goals around digital Indonesia as well as their 
expectation to grow the digital economy to be a substantially larger percentage of their GDP. In the Philippines, we've been doing some really amazing things and from the center's perspective, but I think it is worthwhile to call out how important it is that the business is also driving social impact in the country. And I'm really energized and excited about some of the work. So part of it has been looking at the digital economy and working with our partners, Land Bank and the Philippine Statistics Authority, as well as LGUs around how do we support and bring in 10.2 million Filipinos into the formal economy and have them be banked. And we realized as we started to work with these partners that 82% of those 10 million were not previously banked. And so bringing them into the formal economy opens up incredible opportunities. Additionally, during COVID-19, we've been working again with Land Bank and the government to provide safe, secure, and convenient ways of providing the um, tertiary school subsidy to students, particularly those students who are from the poorest households. And this is important because we don't want to see the challenges that COVID-19 has brought really disrupt education because that creates ripple effects that continue and linger. Talking about the UN Sustainable Development Goals, can you talk a bit about how the center is helping further those goals? There are a number of sustainable development goals that we feel um, we contribute to, but the ones that are probably most relevant for the Center for Inclusive Growth are SDG1, No Poverty, SDG8, Decent Work and Economic Growth, and I would also say SDG17 around partnerships. There's certainly others that as a company, we feel that we contribute to and are producing results that are measurable and meaningful, but those three are ones that I think are at our core. And one of the things that we talk about a lot across the company, not just at the Center for Inclusive Growth, is doing well by doing good. That we fundamentally believe that we can adapt the way that we do business in order to drive social impact while at the same time being commercially sustainable and profitable. We see that we can engage the assets of the company in a way that we really can drive change. How does the center decide which organizations to collaborate with? And how does the center decide which projects to actually initiate? We tend to look at first a goal statement. And then once we have a goal statement, whether it's 100,000 Indonesians succeeding in the digital economy, and then we sort of work backwards and say, if that's our goal, how do we go about implementing that? And what would that look like? And then from at the very, very last part is selecting local implementing partners. And the reason we do that is that we see this opportunity to drive big partnerships because of the unique position we have at the table. And so if we start with local partners, we end up doing lots of small disparate things versus saying, if we know what the goal statement is, how can we internally as well as collaboratively create solutions to solve that? And to give you an example, we realized that access to credit was very difficult 
for small business owners, particularly those mom and pop shops. So in Indonesia, the sari sari stores. And we realized that part of the problem was that they were informal, therefore locked out of the banking system, didn't necessarily have collateral that traditional banks were willing to accept, but they had been running and operating for years, oftentimes decades. And so we went to Unilever, who is a partner of ours, and said, do you have sales data on these, in essence, sorry, sorry stores, but in this case, it was in Kenya. And they said, yes, we have sales data that goes back years that is on a weekly basis. So we brought together one of our bank partners to say, would you be willing to lend not against the books or the cash flow that the store is telling you, but on a recreated cash flow based on the data that Unilever is willing to provide? And based on that, we created a digital credit facility that enables and brings in thousands of small businesses who previously were locked out of financial services. Again, this was in Kenya, but because we did that with Unilever, we are able to then think about how do we pick it up and replicate it in different markets? Because the need for access to credit, particularly in those sorry, sorry stores or those little mom and pop shops, it is almost universal across the world. And so when we start with that kind of goal statement and then creatively think about how do we how do we bring in all the different pieces, we get almost a plug and play approach that we can then really think about replicating. You mentioned using data to reduce information inequality, and you said that information inequality is almost at par with income inequality. So can you tell me more about how exactly the center is using its data to reduce information inequality? It's such a new space for us. And right now, I think income inequality is certainly the most pressing problem and just because of what's happened with the global health pandemic. But as we look and hopefully come out of this pandemic soon, and we can see that data inequality will continue to become a bigger and bigger problem and really create this chasm that is going to be difficult to overcome. And so there's a couple of ways in which we use data to drive better decision making and to empower and enable civil society as well as policymakers to have as much information, as much good information as possible to make better decisions. First, with Rockefeller Foundation, we came together to create a $50 million initiative to really drive the building of capacity for civil society to better use data. Through this, we created data.org, which just hosted a $10 million challenge around solutions that look to resolve access to credit as a challenge around the world. So we're really excited about that initiative and the seven winners were just selected. And so we are waiting very anxiously to see how they develop these solutions and then roll them out to the market. And so that's one way. Another way, um, which is actually relying more on MasterCard's data, is we've created the Inclusive Growth Score, and we pioneered it in the U.S., and it looks at both the data that MasterCard has available, as well as layering in other publicly available data, and it provides anonymized and aggregated insights that can help local policymakers make better decisions. So to give you an example, If I am a local mayor and I'm looking at how do I spend my annual budget and I can see that small business activity is 
really good in parts of town, but really spotty or poor in other parts of town, I'm better equipped to say I should use my budget and my stimulus part of it to support this particular area of town rather than others. And having that insight and that knowledge really helps to guide different policy decisions. That inclusive growth score is publicly available and is in the U.S., but we are bringing it to the United Kingdom, we're bringing it to Singapore, we're bringing it to Brazil, and these are the first countries out of the door. The ambition clearly is how do we continue to help all the different countries that may have this shortfall of data insights. Similarly, from my business counterpart side, it's working with tourism agencies so that they are better equipped and have a better understanding around who are the tourists that come to Cebu, to come to Boracay, and how do you attract them and use your resources better? And so I think all of these data insights can really power and drive better decision-making that creates positive economic growth that's inclusive in local communities, particularly the underserved ones. And we just need to really help to educate people about how to use them, when to use them, to understand what some of the biases might be, and then to um, continue to implement policies that are effective. How does advancing economic growth and financial inclusion redound to a better future for all? Our hypothesis is that economic growth can and should be inclusive. And the way to get there is to work with small businesses and individuals to connect them into the networks that drive the modern economy. And those networks can be everything from financial services to digital platforms to simply skills and know-how and confidence to be able to aspire and pursue your dreams. But connecting small businesses and individuals into those networks then leads to revenue growth prosperity, which over time leads to more job creation in underserved communities. And that's where you see this lift of entire communities, not just one or two individuals who may have been supported. And so as we think about how do we collectively together drive inclusive growth, I think it's how do we bring in the assets that we each have so that we can see true social impact occur. We all have a role to play in making the world a better place. And for us, we want to make certain that the digital economy is available to everyone everywhere so that people can prosper in their communities, their communities can succeed and work for them. And as they do that, we see total national economies grow and become stronger. And that concludes another episode of B-Side. Once again, you heard Allison L. Eskison, Vice President at the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth, speaking with Business World reporter Patricia B. Marisol about information and income inequality. Inclusive growth means ensuring that mom-and-pop shops and sari-sari stores reap the benefits of the digital platforms and financial services that are part of the fintech revolution. In the Philippines alone, the number of unbanked adults was estimated to be around 51 million out of a total adult population of 72 million in 2019. This was according to the Central Bank. And around the world, we're talking about billions of unbanked individuals. 
Asimus Eskeson said inclusive growth means making the digital economy available to everyone, everywhere. This B-Side episode was recorded remotely on March 18. This is Samuel Marcelo. Thanks for listening. Thank you.